Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal, and I'm your host, Tatiana Kosesimov. This week, I'm really honored to have with me a marvelous guest, Katrina Rhodes. Kat's coming in from the Sunshine Coast in Australia. I would normally be very jealous, but luckily the weather's been quite delightful here as well in London over the last couple of days. A little bit of background about the marvelous Kat. Kat actually has a BSc in psychology and human physiology. But like so many of us, at some point decided that she was going to try out a few different things in life before she settled down after a pretty impressive life-changing event, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, to also be an RTT therapist. She is the mother of a gorgeously, ridiculously tall teenage boy. Those are her words, not mine. She's happily married to a very special man for the last 17 years. As I mentioned, she's a therapist. And the most important part of the relevance of Kat's background for this conversation is that she is a cancer survivor. And not just a little cancer survivor, but a really big major one. And we're going to talk about that because Kat's story is absolutely fascinating. It's motivational, it's inspirational, and it's educational. And I'm hoping that's what we're all about here at London Heal. So welcome, Kat. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you, Tatiana. I'm delighted to be here. It's really lovely. So, Kat, um, tell me a little bit about your story. Um, it's it's. I know you and you've, you've told me about it and we, we met in person. We actually trained together. Um, the story is, is really, I mean, there's not many people who, can, who have gone through and could even go through what you've gone through. So let's just start out with the diagnosis and how that came about. Well, the diagnosis was unusual in that I was told that I had stage four terminal cancer literally on my deathbed. <laughs> so some people get the diagnosis of cancer and they're like, they're looking down the barrel of, all right, I have to make decisions. What am I going to do? I've got this cancer diagnosis. I have to make choices. What are those choices going to be? And I've got time to make those choices. That was not my experience. I woke up in hospital with a stoma bag. So for those that don't know, I had a foot of my bowel chopped out and uh, rejoined and it literally poked out of my abdomen and there was a bag attached. So um, that was an utter shock. And then I didn't actually know that I w had cancer until the next day. So I woke up from six hours of surgery, um, discovered that I had this colostomy bag. Um, and then when the doctor came in the next morning, the surgeon, <laughs> I think I know why this man is a surgeon. He's very good with his hands, but he has no bedside manner. <laughs> he, was, he had four other, you know, resident surgeons around him. And he, I just remember him saying, blah, 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 the cancer. Just, you know, throw it out there. And I went, the, the what? And you could Im imagine, like, I'm not, like, propped up in bed having a cup of tea and a piece of toast. I have 11 tubes coming out of my body. I've had major abdominal surgery. I've been unzippered from navel down to my pelvis big bone and I'm weak and vulnerable my normal 65 kilo frame is emaciated down to 47 kilos I'm in a very bad way and he's kind of goes blah blah cancer and I'm like what and he said you know the colon cancer and he said I told you just like that that time I told you and, and like you can imagine my gaping fish expression and I saw the faces of the students around him and they were shocked and they felt so uncomfortable because it was clear that I didn't know. And apparently he had told me, but, you know, I was in a 
post-surgery fog. And, and then it was kind of like, took a little bit to sink in. Oh my gosh, this thing was cancer. Yeah. So that was how I found out the diagnosis was abrupt. It was on my, you know, potential deathbed because I had emergency life-saving abdominal surgery. I didn't know about it. I was clearly ill, but nobody knew what it was. Wow, that's that's just incredible. So take the story on from there. Um, I know that okay. during the recovery period, you uh, you had a lot of time and opportunity to go inwards and and find find out, you know, walk the path of the inner journey a little bit. That that would very much interest me. Tell me a little bit about that. I did. That's very true. So I'm in hospital, and and. I was in hospital for 23 days, partly because I had a complication, my bowel twisted, and I couldn't eat or take in anything, you know, orally by mouth. So I was in hospital for a, a very long period of time. And, you know, I got a chance to take all this in and, you know, I got sent a lot of help. So the physio comes, the oncologist comes, the social worker comes, everybody comes to, you know, help you with whatever, you know, you need help with. And so... I was really, really stunned at this cancer diagnosis, but then suddenly looking back, it all started to make sense. You know, the abdominal pain, um, the not being able to go to the toilet eventually, the vomiting, all the symptoms made sense that I had, what I had was, I had a tumour that was maybe the size of a large tennis ball, maybe bigger. It fully obstructed my bowel. It was like, it sounds like an alien. It had poked out through the bowel and it had, its tentacles had wrapped around other parts of my intestine. So they chopped out a little bit more, you know, while they were there. But I'm very grateful for that because I wouldn't be talking to you today if they hadn't had that surgical skill. And I do remember my surgeon saying to me with great pride, Katrina, we got it all. And I, when he said that, I had this feeling like he really did. He really did get it all. There's no physical cancer left in my body. But then they came back with the pathology saying that it was in the lymph nodes and therefore we want you to have chemotherapy. So the first sort of week that I was in hospital was information. We have to do this. We have to do that. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. You know, the oncologist comes and sits down and tells me we need to give you some chemotherapy we need six months of chemo and they literally said to me do not google this you had um, an adenocarcinoma slow growing maybe four or five years it took to grow so that meant that when the blockage happened I was 46 a couple of weeks later I turned 47 so I was 47 years old and they said to me they would never look for it it was such a, a rare thing in a young person they were even though the symptoms were obvious, nobody looked for it because I had been to hospital six weeks earlier in emergency because if we could kind of get a bit graphic here, I couldn't poop, right? Nothing was coming out the bottom end. And I was, I was vomiting and I was struggling and I was sick and I just didn't feel very good. And they sent me home with um, constipation relievers telling me that I just was constipated and that actually perforated my bowel. So what got me in hospital was a bowel perforation and lots of vomiting as well. So I was taking all this information, oncologists came and I was ready to do chemo. I was, what I want to go back to is when I got the diagnosis, 23 days in hospital, those first 10 days, I needed some time to myself. I needed to kind of take in what had happened to me. When I went into hospital, the night that I went in, something unusual happened that's very hard to describe. I can only call it a surrender. Sounds very woo-woo, sounds maybe new age, but it's, it was a very real thing. I just knew that I needed to give up any fight. I needed to 
give in to any resistance. And I just needed to go to hospital and trust whatever happened, whatever that was going to be. I felt this tremendous acceptance of whatever was going to happen. So when they rolled me into hospital, they said, you've got to have surgery. I said, yes, we need to do this. I said, yes, I had no fight left in me, not in a giving up way, in a surrendering way. So it wasn't like I rolled over and was resentful. I really surrendered my trust in a process that I had no idea what was going to unfold, but I kind of let go and I don't know how to describe it any other way. And that set off a chain of events, which was the perfect surgeon at the perfect time just happened to be on that day. Most incredible team of nurses that nursed me around the clock for a week, a whole week, 10 days. And the most incredible, phenomenal, beautiful, caring set of people that that got me through. They told me that they got a call down from surgery to say, look, we've got a, a young woman who's come in, had this emergency surgery. She's fragile. We need to watch her very carefully. And these people were like angels. So when people bag the medical profession, I just have to say that's not been my experience. And the only thing I felt sad about was that I didn't entrust myself with them earlier. And I suffered so much waiting to get some help out of fear. <laughs> I think that's a huge important message. It's absolutely my message. It's the message of London Heal is is that integrative medicine is the way to go. That, that Definitely. You know, the medical profession has a huge amount to offer. And in a situation like that, the truth is, if they hadn't have intervened, you wouldn't be sitting here today. I'd uh, be dead. And uh, be dead. it does also attract the most caring and uh, committed human beings because I don't know what it's like so much in Australia, but I have to say the NHS is a challenging environment to work in. And I have the most enormous respect for everybody who does that because it certainly doesn't pay well. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, these people really are committed because I think sometimes just to interject that it's, it's important to defend um, because these people go into these jobs because they really want to help and, uh, and they get much maligned. Um, I think sometimes alternative practitioners can be as dogmatic as yes, <laughs> yes. And I think I walked. You said that. I was very appreciative of that. Well, I walked out of hospital feeling not anti about anything. I felt so wide open that any experience is possible. Exactly like you said, I found the doctors and nurses wholeheartedly there in every way. They loved what they did. They given their lives to care for people. They helped love me back to life every bit as much as my family did. And every day I felt so grateful. I had so many tears of gratitude, which brings me to the next part of my story with the epiphanies that I had. So I had surrendered to whatever help I needed. It was really difficult as a young woman to wake up with a very unsexy stoma bag. I mean, really, who wants to poop out the front of their body? I have no control over the noises that it makes, the, 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 what came out of it. Like, I did not feel very sexy or attractive. It was a really big shock. I didn't even know what one was. I had to have an education on what a stoma bag was, right? So <laughs> there were quite a few physical things to get used to, but I was alive. And I began to grieve my life. It was like, here I was, I didn't even know I had cancer. And I felt like, did I care so little about me that I didn't want the answer? that I didn't want to know, that I didn't jump up and down and say to a doctor, something's going wrong, I need an answer. I didn't do that because the truth be told, what I learned about myself was I didn't care about me. I didn't love me enough. And what I felt most upset about was I had a life unlived. And I realized that I needed to live for me, not for my husband. 
not for my child, not for somebody else that I needed to feel like I had a personal sense of purpose, not necessarily knowing exactly what that was, but I was precious to me and I cried bucket loads and I said to the nurses I just need to let get this out of me so please don't be upset about it just let me do this and they did they just I had some patients beside me going nurse no she's crying they're going yes we know she's okay (laughs) that's an incredible thing so if I could just briefly interrupt you there is this a sort of a a background to this story that I've heard from quite a lot of people now Um, so you you sort of innately kind of I'm always very careful the way I express this because I don't ever want people to feel that any kind of disease is their fault. But you understand very quickly that there was something that was a process had gone on inside of you that sort of invited this in. Maybe if we put it that way, because I, I, you know, it's never anybody's fault when they get sick. Nobody does that to themselves intentionally. Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely true. Nobody is at fault. It's not like, you know, it's somebody says, oh, today I deserve cancer. It doesn't work like that at all. But what I, I did, I voraciously sort of searched for information afterwards and I realised that you don't catch cancer. Cancer doesn't happen to you like a cold. It's not something external that penetrates you. It's something that gets switched on. There's some sort of switch or flick or something that happens to, as a catalyst, um, like a confluence of events or situations, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever, that cause cancer to manifest in a body. And I don't have the answers to those things. But for me, I knew very, very clearly that whatever had switched this, um, flicked this switch on in me, part of it was that I hated my guts. Part of it was the deep self-criticism that I had. Part of it was... I really searched my soul for answers that I deep down felt life was too hard and not worth living. Now, I didn't know any of that the week before, but in my vulnerability and my surrendered state, the answers kept on coming flooding. Like I might have mentioned before to you, Tatiana, I needed some silence. All the dinging, pinging, zinging. Hospital is no place for a rest. No. Every night. (laughs) Every night I would. Tragic environment. Yeah. (laughs) It is. It's shocking. You know, and, and, you know, with the best of intentions, let's wake you up every few hours hours but oh my gosh I I, you know I I left there sleep deprived so I would wheel my little you know IV drip and carry my little bag of stuff into the chapel each night where it was just me there was total silence and I could connect with myself I could listen to myself I could release any emotion I could check in with me and I did I did and in that process I realized that if I could be really blunt, that I had been a crappy sister. I'd been a shitty daughter. I'd been a horrible wife, you know, like, and that I wasn't judging myself. It's just the truth. I was really honest with myself without that judgment. And I knew that I had been the kind of person that pushed people away. I didn't cultivate relationships because I was afraid of getting hurt. I didn't want to be close in case they criticized me. And I had alienated most people in my life and blamed them and thought that I was right. I was being very self-righteous. I thought falsely that I was way more loving than them. I was so superior. Hello. And then I got cancer. Like what a wake up call. (laughs) And, you know, so I can't honestly, if anybody says to you, you know, cancer's a gift, truly, you really want to punch them. It's like, hello, who would invite that in? But it had so many gifts to reveal to me how to live 
And maybe it's true, maybe you don't really live until life is taken from you. It's certainly been an absolute wake up call for me because it was like my life flashed before my eyes and I didn't like what I saw. So what I decided to do was to, in the hospital, was to telephone and contact every person that I really loved, that I felt that I had something to say to or that I had wronged. But it was the most extraordinary thing because I wasn't looking for an apology. I, I had this incredible knowing that I needed to love them anyway. My sisters, I wanted them in my life. I wanted a relationship with them no matter what they did or said to me, my mother, my husband, some friends. So I systematically went about making phone calls saying to them, I love you from the bottom of my heart. I've been a bad sister. I know I've done the wrong thing. And I just want you to know that I know that I have done this and you matter to me so much. And I had no expectation of a positive outcome. I just was vulnerable, defenseless. I had no anger, no fight in me. It's really hard to describe. And it was like magic happened. Some people said no to that. And most people stepped in and now I have a better relationship with them than I've ever had in my whole life. Wonderful. Let's go back a little bit to the um, to the story of, of of actually what happened when you you know when they were suggesting that you take chemotherapy. So you know yes. you've gone through this this stage of of really deep inner searching, um, and then at some point you you have to decide what to do next on a on a medical level. So what what was going through your mind there? What happened then? Well. By then I had completely surrendered and I was willing to do whatever it took to live. And, you know, I might, I didn't even actually really feel that afraid. I was like, I'll do whatever it takes. It's okay. I, I just had this sense that if I do whatever it takes, I will live and I will be fine. And that unlived life, I can, I'm free to go and explore what that is. But, you know, <laughs> There's, when you, I don't know, for some reason when you get cancer, everybody thinks that, you know, they've got a right to either give you their opinion or steer you in a particular direction. Like it's a highly charged situation. So I said to my husband, I'm having chemo. Well, he was rather upset about that. You know, I want to say something else too about that. So in that time when I've diagnosed and I'm saying, I want to have chemotherapy, I'm going to go with that. My husband looked at me and I thought, you know, I don't really have a right to expect to drag him through this. I don't even know if he wants to. It makes me emotional thinking about it. So in my hospital bed when he was by my side one evening before he left, I said to him, darling, if you don't want to do this, I understand. If you don't want to continue life's journey with me, I understand. If you find that this is all too hard and you need an, an exit, this is it. Go away and think about it. And I really meant it. And it was really sad to say it, but just all those things going on in me, I didn't really want to make him feel obligated. You know, it's, 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 it's not easy for anyone. I didn't know what path I was going to walk, how long it was going to take or how, what the outcome would be. I just wanted him to know that he didn't have to do it with me. I find that very humbling, Katrina, that, that somebody in that position can find it within themselves to actually put their own their own needs to one side and actually consider the needs of another human being I think that's uh that's a pretty impressive thing to do well I just looked at this incredible man who had been by my side through thick and thin and I realized I don't know what he wants it's not up to me to assume that I do and he got very quiet he didn't say anything I expected him to go home and think about it so we sat there in a moment of silence and then he spoke up and he said to me don't be stupid <laughs> <laughs> and that was that <laughs> so on with the chemotherapy thing 
my sister came to help. I got out of hospital and I went to see the oncologist for an oncology appointment. Now, I'm, without a word of an exaggeration, they spent one and a half hours telling me what could go wrong. I fainted. <laughs> I could It was just like too much. Great I no could not cope with it. Right <laughs> <laughs> I just could not. I couldn't take it in. I felt sick. I wanted to vomit. And I left there. Something else funny happened in the hallway, but it's not really <laughs> in a family-friendly podcast. I can't repeat what my sister said. <laughs> and then here's, I want to tell you this little piece of magic because this was just so incredible. So I go home and I, I got to go back later on and tell you something else, but I go home, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and it's like, I put it out to whatever you believe in God, the universe, whatever. And this, this incredible call to life, whatever it takes for me to heal, I will do it. Show me the way. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to go. I'm frightened, but I will do whatever it takes. And it's kind of like, I kind of like felt it leave me. Like something comes out of your heart and it just takes flight off into what the universe, whatever you believe exists. And I went to sleep. Well, within 24 hours, a very dear friend contacted me on Facebook who I'd been slightly estranged with, one of my pushing away things. But we were really close a few years before. And she literally <laughs> says to me, hey, Kat, what's up? And I'm like, cancer, Lou, cancer. And she wrote, shit. The next minute, my phone rings. My phone rings and it's her. She's ringing me from a wedding in the UK. And she said to me, look, darling, she's English. You know, looks, and she talks like, sweetie, darling. Look, darling, she said, darling, you know, I don't want to tell you what to do, darling. But, you know, if you're considering doing chemo, darling, will you just look at this first? So I'm like, sure, I will. So she sent me a link and a book. In 24 hours, this book had landed in my mailbox. She sent me this link. She said, look, darling, I know you're a researcher, darling. Just look at this and trust me, darling. It's really good stuff. So it was the Gerson therapy, which I'd never heard of. So I watched 72 hours of videos just about on Charlotte Gerson, the Gerson therapy. It's a natural therapy, detox, juicing. It's in Mexico, etc. So I read the book cover to cover in that 72 hours. And I, did, I, I realized, I decided this is for me. This was my answer from the universe. Chemo is not the answer. This is my answer. And there were lots of factors involved. One was I was emaciated. Every time I went back to the doctors, they were like, Katrina, we cannot give you chemo until you put on weight. We need six more kilos on you. You have to get bigger. You won't cope with it if you don't. So I was worried for my, my health. I had bowel cancer. I really had a messed up digestive system. And what chemotherapy does is it's designed to kill those very rapidly reproducing cells, which is mouth gut lining. So I was already going to have absorptive problems. They told me how much I would vomit and I wouldn't feel like food. And all these things were just going ching, 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 ching. Maybe this isn't the right thing for me to do. But what was in the back of my mind was they had told me, and I quote, this is curative. They told me the chemo would cure me. Now, what oncologist says that? Like that's an unusual thing to hear. But I put this call out to the universe. This My friend who hadn't spoke to you for four years rings me and says, you know, darling, look at this. I look at this, the Gerson therapy, and it just spoke to me so loudly. And then here's the clincher. It was like 38 grand to go and do this. Flights from Australia, take my mother, three weeks at the clinic. <laughs> she said to me, I can't say this without crying, so get out your tissues, people. <laughs> she said to me, darling, you're too precious to lose. I'm paying for everything. That's, and she did. That's wonderful. So that's friendship for you. And, oh, you know, love. like, <laughs> that's, love. that's love. That is love. Absolutely. And, you know, and on that topic, I do want to say I totally get why people die with cancer. 
and and because the love that you get is so addictive and I totally get it it's the outpouring of love you really know who cares for you and why and it'd be so easy to lean on that as a crutch rather than go you know I can take that love and live and love myself in the same way that's the path that I took but it's so easy not to do that and that's okay too. What I learn about cancer is, trust me people, everything is okay. So many people have come to me, Kat, you've got to talk to my dad, he's got cancer. I've got to talk to my mum or my aunt. I don't like what they're doing. They're giving up. They can't do this. They can't do that. And I say to them, I know you're frightened and I know you love them and I know you want them here, but they have a right to choose anything they want and they're allowed to. It's okay. It's really hard to accept that, but it's true. Important message. It's a super important message because yeah. I think, I think that everybody does, you know, we, we talk here about mind body being a, just a statement of fact for us. It's not even a discussion anymore, whether there's a connection. And I think, I think that in situations like that, if you're receptive to your own inner, inner person, inner being, whatever you want to call it, your own inner self, you, 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 get to understand quite quickly what's right for you and what you really want. I mean, my father, for example, never had cancer, but um, he actually died of a, a, a heart attack, sudden, sudden heart attack, um, completely unexpected. But a couple of months beforehand, he'd gone and visited everybody that he had known, people he hadn't seen for years. And they had actually always uh, said at the funeral, they had had a feeling that he was kind of saying goodbye. And my father had always said he was going to die young and he was 59. And he also had a terrible fear of suffering. So Sometimes, you know, there's, there's no scientific evidence of that. And I'm supposed to be the scientist and very, <laughs> but sometimes I really get the feeling that if we just kind of open our, our inner ears, you know, we, we kind of know what's right for us. And, and I agree with you. I think for some people, perhaps to fight is the way to go. And for other people not to fight is the, and it's okay. I, yeah. yeah. And yeah, the, best my support, the, same the best support you can give a cancer patient perhaps is to support them in their decisions. Yes. Wise, wise words and deeds. You know, I just want to talk about that whole fight thing as well, because I didn't fight at all. I remember my sister crying and saying to me, you know, she said to me, you have to fight this. You know, when I said no to chemo, you have to fight this. And I said to her, you know, darling, it's okay. I, I don't need to fight it. I'm going to live. Like I want to talk about this because it's really an important distinction. Like I said, cancer doesn't, it's like it's not contagious. It doesn't happen from the outside in. It's an inside job. You can't fight something and win. You can't fight any war and win. You can't fight any argument and win. There's two losers. In every fight, there's only losers. So there's a very big difference between deciding I want to live and love myself back to life and fighting something with aggression that is created inside of your body that probably happens because of maybe some inner, lack of inner harmony, some discord, something that's going on that you're fighting with in the first place. I mean, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I do know this. I didn't fight at all. I just had this strong desire to be kind to me, to nurture me, to make choices that were right for me and not argue with another person about them. And I'll give you an example. Saying no to chemo was one of the toughest things I ever did. Boy, did it test my resolve. I rang my GP and he said to me, 
he said to me, literally, Katrina, he said to me, you are going to break my heart. You are going to die and I'm going to have to palliate you. And I wrote that down. Like, and I was a sobbing wreck. That's very, very heavy. The oncologist too, you know, tried to talk me out of it. And in the end, I said to him, I said to him, you don't get to decide for me. I said to him, everybody wants a piece of me. Nobody's asked me what I want. I said to him, I have the right to choose if you don't like it or not. I have the right to choose if I live or die. I have the right to choose how I am treated. And I'm allowed to make a mistake. My body, my life, my choice. And saying that was very freeing. My family were all very frightened. It did divide them. They didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen. But I realized this, there are no guarantees I did what I felt in the depth of my heart was the right thing to do even though I had some doubts but I had more doubts about chemotherapy but I knew that I needed to take the path that was presented to me and I knew that I could trust myself in that process and that was the most important thing that I could do I don't even know if that makes sense, but it makes absolute sense. It makes absolute sense. I do yeah. to interject at this point, of course, that we're not recommending to anybody that they should not follow chemotherapy if they feel absolutely, them. totally. You know, but but we are yeah. primarily also about empowering, and I think part of empowering is is being able to make that decision um, if you don't feel it's the right decision for you. And in your case, you you found another another approach which really spoke to you and it is. I, always, I always say that you know the worst thing you can do is 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 make a decision and feel bad about it you know mm. whatever decision you make line up with it and go with it and so you made a decision with the support of your friend and financial support as well to go and do the Gerson therapy now I looked it up on the uh, NHS website about the Gerson therapy because I was to see what they would say I mean I know about the therapy itself but it actually very very clearly says that um, some people with cancer choose to have the Gerson therapy even though there is no scientific evidence that it works and can sometimes makes them feel worse mm. I thought that was kind of a, an interesting mm. thing um, Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that process and, mm -hmm. and how, what it did for you? I definitely will. And just to recap on what you said before, I just do want to reiterate to our listeners um, that I'm not advocating not to do anything or to do something. And I'm certainly not anti-chemo because to be very clear, had my Gerson therapy not worked, I would have gone to chemo. Absolutely. I would have, you know, I gave myself a three month window during that time getting regular testing. And if it didn't work for me, I was going to do plan B, C, D or E, just this particular plan A was the right one for me to begin with. And so on that, so, you know, mum and I That's pack to out little bags. To the lymph nodes, right? Because you've actually got, you've got some cancer cells have gone from the primary tumour into the lymph yes. nodes. And the Correct. risk there is that mm. they can then now migrate around the body, settle somewhere else and start up a metastatic process just so that people understand what the risk is. Exactly was. right. The, well, the risk was twofold. One was metastatic cancer, particularly in the liver. So the, generally speaking, colon cancer that metastasizes goes straight to the liver. The, also, the other risk was more uh, tumours in the colon. So there right. was both. But the, also the other part of it was, was cancer is a crash of the immune system. The immune system is not functioning properly. The liver is not detoxifying properly. And my immune system was well and truly crashed. And 
I, my body was emaciated. So I needed to rebuild my physical body. I needed to gain weight and strength. I needed to gain immune function and I needed to prevent those cancer cells from metastasizing. So the Gerson therapy offered me these things. It has a couple of pillars. One of them was the detoxification, which was um, going through a, a process where the liver function was enhanced um, and any cancer cells, you know, that they could, you know, die, not take root. So it was like changing the internal environment. If you think of the body like soil, you know, my soil was depleted and what we needed to do was pop in a lot of nutrient so that soil was rich again and fertile again and the plants would grow, the flowers would grow and the weeds would die. <laughs> so the Gerson therapy was like this, you know, a massive um, kind of like bombardment of goodness. The food was all um, provided for us. I was on a juicing program. I, I drank 10 juices a day. I ate nothing but plant matter. I had a detoxification program of three coffee enemas a day. I took 58 supplements. I was medically supervised every day. They took my bloods on a regular basis. And I continued to have CT scans and colonoscopies on a very frequent basis and be monitored by my Australian doctors. So that was basically the program. Mum and I were in Mexico for a couple of weeks and we bought it home. She stayed a few weeks, taught my husband. And that man deserves a medal because the Gerson therapy is intense and grueling on the whole family financially and physically and he juiced for me for two solid years that man deserves a medal that's love for you that absolutely that's commitment is. but mm. you know katrina the love that you get from others is only a reflection of how wonderful you are as a person so <laughs> Think well, thank that. you. I, <laughs> I can honestly say I could embrace that now. But a few years ago, I think, you know, I, I know I definitely struggle with that. But you know what it made me do? It made me realize the value of receiving. I can receive now, you know, and I realize how much when you don't let someone give to you, you're blocking a beautiful process. Somebody, you're, you're stopping them from having the joy that they experience from giving, you know, somebody giving their love to you in whatever form it takes and you receiving that. It's like, it's like a sign cycle is complete it's like the circle is is a whole it's it's such actually a beautiful thing to receive and I got really good at asking for help and um you know I, that's a much healthier process as well now I don't have any problem reaching out and saying you know could you would you is it okay if you know things like could you we ask families would you help me with my lunchbox for my son like people come over and help with the washing um you know like the, the help that we got was amazing because I let it in I received it. Fabulous. So two years of juicing and, <laughs> and yes. other relatively unsavory things <laughs> later. It was very boring. Yeah. Very boring. <laughs> and so how was it? Um, you were being monitored with the scans and everything. And, and how, how did the process, the medical part of the process, you know, the recovery process, how did that look? Mm. in terms of like going and seeing the practitioners yeah and also like the, the 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 time frame you know when did you start to see results and and you know how mm. how were they monitored and, and given back to you? I, I was very tired and very um like I really understand that whole the Gerson therapy can sometimes make it worse and I think it's because of the detoxification process you, know, if you can imagine that a body that is broken down that much you know my body had eaten itself I had no muscle left at all people stared at me in the street you could count my ribs from across the road I looked like one of those really really sick 
people, I had a hollowed bottom cheeks and, you know, I didn't, I'd hardly recognize myself. So there was a long process of physically rebuilding my body and I was very, very tired. So it probably took me about a year. I mean, I probably felt, I felt an instant lift in energy fairly quickly, but it probably took me about a year before I felt like, you know, I could get up and move around somewhat normally. But then we moved house at 18 months. And the best that I could manage was a 10 minute walk, 10 minutes up and 10 minutes back. And I still felt very, very tired. So it took a long time for me to build stamina and build energy. In fact, it took three and a half years before I could get through what I consider a normal day. We know, wake up, take your son to school, do daily activities, bring your child home, make some dinner. It took three and a half years before I could do that and didn't feel like I have to flop into bed exhausted and not have a nap in the day. So it took a long time. And um, the doctors were monitoring, um, were they checking your lymph um, nodes again? And, and yes, they were. Yeah, I was having CT scans, colonoscopies and blood tests with regularity. And my surgeon, the, you know, the guy who had the poor bedside table, bless his beautiful heart, because I said no to chemo, he took me under his wing. And he's the one that I see every year for all my testing. And that's not actually his job. And on the third year, Every time I went to see him, he would have another practitioner there. I remember in the third year, he had some guy visiting from somewhere and he asked me a few questions about the Gerson and my surgeon looked at me and said, Katrina, whatever you're doing, it's working. Keep up the good work. I think that's a big thing for them to say. But then again, mm. you know, as, as we all say, at the end of the day, I think doctors are the very first people who just want their patients to get well. I think so. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and he said to me, you know, in the first year, he said to me, look, I'm a cup half empty kind of guy. That's who I am. He said, I had another surgeon who was such a bright, happy person. He said to me, see him. He's a cup half full. He hasn't been around long enough. He said, I've seen it all, you know, like, but I remember every time I'd come in, the surgeon would actually look me in the eye and ask me, am I happy? How am I going? How is my life really? I think he's quite fascinated by it all. But, you know, by law, they can't recommend these types of things. They would lose their licenses. But bless his beautiful heart, he's followed my progress. He's kept an eye on me. And in three months' time, I have my final round of testing because it's five years and all clear. Wonderful. Isn't that the mm. most amazing news? Well done, mm. you. Well Thank done. Thank you. But I do want to admit, can I mention one more thing? Of course. Something really important to my story. When I was in hospital for those 23 days and I was going to the chapel, I had a profound experience that I can tell you now and the listeners, I've never talked about this publicly to anybody. So this is an exclusive. Wow. <laughs> I was in that chapel asking, I don't know, for for understanding for release for healing for whatever and you know I really was grieving it was like pain was leaving me all this pain that I didn't love myself I didn't like myself I hadn't listened to me I pushed everybody away I didn't even know that I was so unhappy you know I didn't understand that you know I wanted to have a life I there was so many unfinished things I needed to sing I needed to find my purpose I needed to have something exciting for me all of this stuff was going on and in that moment in that experience I felt a presence that was the most loving thing I've ever experienced in my whole life and I can't even put words to it I felt this presence wrap its arms around me it didn't have arms but like wrap its I don't know embrace me and the love that I felt was 
beyond anything that you could ever imagine, greater than the love I have for my child, greater than anything I've ever experienced for my family. This love held me and I felt worthwhile. I felt precious. I felt important. I felt loved. I felt wanted and 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 just this love was unimaginably non-judgmental and, and allowing this thing held me in its arms while the sadness left me and as this sadness was leaving me the realizations were coming I was worth loving yes I can live my life yes I'm important no I don't need to live my life for my son and my husband yes my life's important to me it was the most compassionate empathetic supportive non-judgment loving thing that you could ever ever imagine and it changed my life and I believe that's why I'm here today and Anita Morjani talks about it in her book I needed to understand this experience I left hospital and I read voraciously I researched near-death experiences because I didn't leave my body but I felt that same type of love that people describe when they die and come back and that changed me forever Thank goodness that it did. And thank goodness that you listened, because I think sometimes a lot of us get what I call the call of spirit, but they don't always hear it. Um, yeah. And sometimes I also think, you know, if you don't listen, don't worry, the call will get louder. <laughs> and sometimes it has to be very loud indeed, you know, and, and it's, uh, it ends up in a traumatic event and sometimes we still don't listen um but i think yeah you know i think there's a lesson to be learned and in all of those things i know joe dispenser often says that you know when you when you look back at a tragic event in your life and you you can understand what what lesson it taught you and you've decoupled the the anger and the fear and the emotion from it that it turns into wisdom and i think that that's a that's a very inspired thing to say and i think in your case you know that that inner wisdom absolutely radiates out from you 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 look amazingly content with who you are and i think that uh, i think perhaps that was the lesson that you that you had to go through that to learn i feel that and the only thing i struggled with afterwards was this new me knew me everybody who met me was expecting the old me and right. I could watch them I could watch them looking at me thinking is the bitch going to return you know is she going to be a cow again <laughs> where's the old Katrina and even now five years on every now and again I see my sisters looking at me like they'll they'll say something that once upon a time I would have you know reacted to and I don't and I I see them going checking themselves going wow nothing happened there you know like Gosh, that was a moment. <laughs> Who are you and what have you done with Katrina? You know, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I watch my husband do it sometimes too. It's like, it's really funny, actually. So I know, Katrina, you said that you'd learned something else important. Tell me a little bit about that too. Yeah, I think it's the one, the main thing that I, that I learned, that I live out in my life is I think I have found the meaning of life as corny as that sounds <laughs> and the meaning of life is connecting it's our relationships with one another it's the connections that we have it's more important than anything else and it's made me want to stop and smell the roses and savor the moment I love the minutiae of life the small things like I really do enjoy just you know, just the teen stuff that my son is going through and making nourishing meals at home and slowing things down. You know, I, I stand on the beach now with awe and wonder. I wake up every day gr with gratitude that I never had before, that I get to live another day today. And even if today is 
you know, for somebody else mundane, I love that I can drive our son to school and we can have a chat and that when we come home, we can just sit down and reconnect again. I feel a deeper sense of wanting to connect and wanting to create more of a community in my life because it's, it's who we have in our lives and how we interact with them and what we give to one another that is the meaning of life, that gives life meaning, that love and friendship and kindness that we share. It's that, it's that relationship. On my deathbed, which is what I faced, I realised the only thing that mattered was how I had been towards somebody else and did I express enough that they mattered to me and did I really be present and savor the moment and and really enjoy being with them and express that that's all that really mattered I wanted more of that I think that's um that's a huge lesson to learn um I'm I'm desperately sorry that that it took you such a a radical path to learn that lesson um i think we all we all have to learn that lesson um you know i i think we've all been through through terribly emotionally deep experiences to come to that point of understanding and you read all the time when people write on their deathbeds nobody ever says they wish they'd work more or they don't have money <laughs> you know it's all about the relationships and and i think the most incredible thing is Kurt, that like for a lot of other people that have been through similar experiences that you've chosen to give back which is why I suspect you also now um, are practicing as a therapist, that, that you're giving not just your experience, but that love. Yes, yeah. It, it, what really fired me up was I went to a, a workshop one day, a girlfriend said, I've got a ticket, come along. And in this workshop, this man said, I want you to write down the reason why you want to jump out of bed every day. What's going to make you leap out of bed every day? And I thought, wow, you know, that's a great question. And he said, I'm going to give you a few minutes just to write, just, just get it all down. Don't overthink it. Just get the, the hand fly. And my reason for jumping out every day was to help other people heal at that deeper emotional level and connect with the, themselves and really like themselves to want to befriend themselves, to think that they really matter and just after that RTT entered my life I mean how perfect rapid transformational therapy is all about really liking you being there for you becoming your best friend realizing that you're worth it and it's not up to somebody else to decide you're worth it you can do that for yourself so it was a perfect match absolutely absolutely and I know that you're an absolutely phenomenal therapist and uh, we'll put Katrina's details um, in the notes to the podcast so that you can all get in touch with her, especially those who want to see you in person on the Gold Coast in Australia. She's, um, she's the loveliest, sunniest person that, that I've met. <laughs> in definitely, oh, that's, definitely thank you. That's so kind. <laughs> and, um, and I really think that you've had an, a, a, you have a huge message for so many people out there safe, facing that diagnosis because you're, um, you know, you're a message of hope. Um, maybe the same path is not the same path for everybody else, not suitable for everybody else. But I think what you've done is given people the strength um, and the encouragement perhaps to look inside and just ask themselves a question, which way is right for me? And I think that's a huge, huge gift to pass on. And I thank you for it. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to be here to be able to say it. <laughs> we always um, finish up on, on London Hill with, with our favourite three little questions. And so um, I'm going to now put them to you. So could mm -hmm. you tell me briefly 
what does health actually mean to you and how do you how do you experience that health to me means honestly that i can actually forget that i even have a body right so <laughs> nothing aches nothing hurts everything's working so well that i just get on with my life you know i can move my limbs in whatever way i like i can keep up with my son i can walk my dog on the beach i just feel amazing so that i can focus on expressing all the things i love to do in life i can sing i can work i can cook i can have fun i can dance it's like health is like body really oh yeah i've got one it works perfectly that's health to me it's a wonderful definition of it. Absolutely brilliant. I think I may have to steal that one. <laughs> <laughs> what about happiness? Uh, we talked a lot about relationships just now and how important they are, but where does Katrina find happiness? I think what I'm a kind of person who needs to recharge. So my version of happiness is, um, you know, just actually I love being with my family. Just, I'm happy watching my, like, I'll give you a classic example. Son, my son turned 14 on the weekend and I had, you know, those, one of those magic moments where I'm in the room, there's six boys, yeah, they're gaming, they're on their technology. Somebody popped a song on and everybody started singing. And I've got these gorgeous 13, 14 year old boys singing at the top of their lungs, this really funny song. And I just sat there and thought, I couldn't be happier right now. This is absolute bliss. I'm with these gorgeous boys who are right in their happy spot and I'm witnessing and experiencing that. Like life doesn't get any better than that. That makes me happy. But what also fills me up to make me happy, if I sing, if I meditate, if I walk the dog on the beach and if I make sure I connect properly from my heart to the people I love every day, I'm good. And wonderful advice, wonderful advice. And I think it's so, uh, you know, carpe diem, isn't it? It's, it's not yeah. only seize the day, it's also enjoy the moment. <clears throat> yeah. And the last yeah. thing is, you, you spoke a little bit about that with the walks and the meditation is, how do you find serenity? How do you actually get to that point where you um, experience that stillness and that quiet or what I always like to call turning down the volume? I do transcendental meditation and I also practice mindfulness, you know, you know, in, in terms of the dictionary definition, I have learned it. I went to did a course in it. And so I have some stillness and mindfulness and I journal. So that's probably the key things that I do. Plus I'm very blessed to be living near one of the world's most beautiful beaches and a walk on the beach with my dog and just some inner time just zens me out. I can think about things or not think about things, sort things through. I always walk away from the beach with clarity and calm. Wonderful. Get back to nature. That seems to be a message that so many of my guests yes. have, been, have been giving us all. Well, could you know our time is up and I can't thank you enough for sharing your extremely powerful and moving story with us. I hope you'll, you'll come back on um, my pleasure. in the future yeah. and, and tell us a bit more. <clears throat> um, it's been really insightful and I hope very inspirational. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Keep doing it. Keep showing other people the way and the light and uh, bless you. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tatiana. You're more than welcome. So dear listeners, that was an incredible episode this week. I hope you agree with me that the cat is really just a very, very special lady and with a very special message of inspiration look forward to listening to us again the next time and if you like what you've heard please 
rate us, review us, and subscribe on iTunes so that we can bring you more and more of these important messages and inspirational speakers. It's been an absolute pleasure from my side. See you next time and wishing you all health, happiness, and serenity.